Please stand as you're able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death? I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting, because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, Your brother has arrived, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, Look, I've served you all these years, and I have never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, I want to add my word of greeting to that of Adam's. Uh, we're grateful that you're here, those of you in person uh, today. And those of you who are online, it's always a privilege to be with you in your homes. It's an honor to share God's word with you. Thanks to Mason and Adam and Jeff uh, for reading for us today. And Carolyn, what a joy it is to have you with us. Uh, I think it's been three years since we've been able to be together. Uh, most of you know that that's an annual event, usually, uh, pre-COVID days when we had Ray Samanga, who was with us uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and to have Carolyn with us today. And Hugh, 
thank you for all the work that you do in regard to South Africa. And, and to all of you, uh, Carol and I had the privilege of meeting this week, and we were discussing how even in COVID, uh, there were 430 students who were supported by you uh, and teachers who were supported by you. $500 each year supports a student from one of these settlements in Howick, South Africa, in one of our schools. And you all have been incredibly supportive and helpful, and we're grateful to you, and especially grateful, Carolyn, to you for your ongoing work, your partnership, and what it means for us to be together with you today. It's very, very special. Uh, she'll be participating with us at the 1045 service as well. Well, I don't have to tell you today that, that this is perhaps uh, the best-known parable in the New Testament. In fact, most of you could tell this story without hearing it read. You could tell it from your own point of view. And I've discovered even those of us who are biblically illiterate know this story of the prodigal son. In fact, the word prodigal in the Greek language literally means wasteful or reckless which is a good descriptor of the conduct of this young rebel who left home way too early for his own good with a fistful of cash. What you may not know is it's one of three parables that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. There's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, and there's the lost son. All three of those parables, this trilogy of stories, speaks to the human condition that we are inclined to get lost in our lives, and it speaks to the divine response of God, the great joy of God in recovering something, or more importantly, someone who has strayed from him. I, I remember as a boy, we used to play hide-and-seek. Did you all play that when you were growing up, hide-and-seek? And, and sort of uh, the method, uh, the object of the game was to not be found was to find a secret, remote, secluded place or closet in your home, and someone would count how many ever Mississippis, and then they would come and find you. And so the object of the game was not to be found. But the same thing would happen over and over again to us, that if too much time elapsed and nobody discovered you, uh, what would you do? <clears throat> Clear your throat. You'd stomp your foot or you'd make a little noise, because the truth is, nobody ever really wants to win that game. I've discovered that everybody, sooner or later, really wants to be found. The first two stories in Luke 15 tell of a shepherd searching for a lost lamb and a woman who is seeking a misplaced coin. It's interesting if you look at Matthew's parallel of of the lost sheep, uh, the parallel in Matthew says that the shepherd searches high and low for the lost lamb, and if he finds it, puts it on his shoulders and takes it home. But Luke's version is a little bit different. There is no if in Luke's version. Luke says a shepherd loses one of 99 and seeks and searches until he finds the lost lamb. That's a little different from if. How long is until? It's infinite. It's endless. It's exhaustive. What it means is that God, in his way of looking for us, will not stop, will not quit, unless and until he finds what he's looking for. 
Uh, many of you know we just returned, a group of us uh, just returned from Israel. We worked our way from Tel Aviv uh, up north to Galilee, up to the Golan Heights, and then all the way down to the desert, to Masada, to Qumran, and the Dead Sea. Uh, I want to tell you that every time we boarded our buses, we had two buses, we took a head count, always to make sure that we had the same number in the bus that we had when we arrived at the place we were visiting. And I'm thrilled to tell you that we brought back to Nashville the same number that we took. Uh, if we hadn't, we wouldn't have come home. If we hadn't, I'd still be there. The gospel is like that. The gospel is essentially a search and rescue effort. For the Son of Man came not to find those who were already found, but to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a trilogy of stories. But to get the full impact of this trilogy, you really have to find these stories in context. You have to go back to Luke 15, 1 and 2. Here's the context. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him, but the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling and saying, this man welcomes tax collectors and sinners and even eats with them. And then Jesus tells the stories. The context of this trilogy is one of religious grumbling. And it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Our friends, our Jewish friends, in the old Yiddish term call it kvetching. Uh, we have another word for it that I won't mention, but grumbling is, is the thing. Uh, someone once said language was invented because of our inner need to complain. And I think there's some truth to that. But the complaint raised by these religious folks concerned Jesus' table fellowship with these outsiders. What you may not know is that in ancient days, table fellowship was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of friendship. You, you only ate with people in your own tribe, your friends. And it's one thing to tolerate the dregs of society. It's another thing to accept them. And so to eat with such characters struck the scribes and Pharisees as rather unkosher and perhaps made Jesus, the rabbi, unclean. Now, you may also recall that the most common critique of Jesus by his opponents was this. He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend to sinners and tax collectors. Now, what I want to say to you is I don't think the Pharisees were wrong about these characters. They were sinners. But I think the Pharisees were wrong when they assumed that they themselves were without sin. Reminds me of another parable that Jesus told three chapters after what Jeff read for us in Luke 18, a story of two men who went to temple one day in Jerusalem for a little prayer meeting, a Pharisee and a tax man. And the way Jesus tells the story, the Pharisee, listen to this, stood postured himself and prayed thus to himself, Lord, I just want to thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a thug. I'm not a crook. I'm not an adulterer or heaven forbid. I'm not like this tax man for I fast twice a week and I tithe of everything that I get. Meanwhile, Jesus says, the tax collector is slumping in the shadows 
tears in his eyes, face in his hands, not daring to look up and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, after telling the story, can you guess which one of these two went home right with God? It was the tax collector. And according to Eugene Peterson's translation, the message, Jesus P.S.'d, gave a postscript by saying this, if you walk around with your nose up in the air, you're going to wind up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you will become more than yourself. The point of all of those parables is the same. It has to do with the deep sense of joy that God has when a sinner repents, when a person acknowledges my own wrongdoing. But God takes no joy in those who are unaware of our need to repent. In fact, I think you can make a case in the Scripture that self-righteousness is the premier enemy of the gospel because my own self-righteousness not only distances me from God, but it separates us from each other and from others who desperately need God. And so Luke includes this trilogy as a defense of Jesus' mission. The tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen while the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling against him. And then to the last parable, the third parable. The parable of the prodigal begins with this verse, verse 11. There was a certain man who had two sons. That's an important line. That sentence reminds us that the the love of the Father is in no way exclusive. It is not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and proposition. This is a Father who extends grace to both the righteous and the rebel. I think that line is also kind of an echo of the reality of sibling rivalry that is inherent in the biblical story and in our own stories, and it starts early. My wife is an only child. She's never understood this until she married me. I have an older sister, a younger brother. It starts early, sibling rivalry. But in this case, God wants us to know, the Scripture wants us to know, that this is a father who loves two sons, who reaches out to two sons, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, even Mary and Martha, though they're often at odds, even to the point of division and hostility and sometimes violence, God's grace is not an either-or grace. It's a both-and grace to righteous and to rebel. Now, in the case of this parable, these two boys couldn't be more opposite from each other. The younger boy comes to his dad with what I think is a bizarre request. He says to him, I want you to give me my share of the inheritance now. Now, in other words, what he's saying is, Dad, I want what's coming to me when you die even before you ever get sick. In effect, what this young man is saying is, Dad, you're worth more to me dead than alive. And when you see that, you realize 
that this boy treasures property more than relationship. What he's actually doing in this request is he's severing his relationship to his family. Now, this is the Revised Chapel version. The scripture doesn't say it, but I think he's a baby boomer, born out of season. His favorite words are me, mine, and now. He has little patience. He has no sense of delayed gratification. He's entitled to get what he wants. And the amazing thing is the father acquiesces. He gives it to him. Now, according to the Jewish law in the first century, the older boy, the older son, gets two-thirds of the inheritance. He gets twice what the younger gets. The younger gets one-third, but he can't wait. And so he takes his share, he cashes out, he liquidates the property, and listen to this, and he flees to the far country. What does that mean? That phrase, the far country, is figurative language which simply means Gentile territory. In other words, this young man is going to a place where nobody knows his name, where nobody knows his father, where nobody knows his faith, where nobody knows his family. He can be in a far country, whoever he wants to be, no expectations, no demands, no responsibilities. We might call it today college. But whatever the case, he lives high on the hog for a time, at least until daddy's money runs out. And he winds up living, get this, he winds up living in a pig pen, which is about as low as a Jewish boy can go, and there's a famine. This, this is a perfect storm. There's a food shortage. Inflation is up, Dow is down, gas is four bucks a gallon, and the pigs are better off than the boy, and he hits rock bottom. In a pigsty, he comes to his senses. I love that phrase, he comes to his senses. In other words, he sees where he is, he understands what he's become, he smells, he sees, he hears the sounds, and he remembers his father. When he remembers his dad, one translation says he came back to himself. I love that phrase. The longest trip you'll ever make is to come back to yourself. And suddenly, in the blend of hunger and poverty and memory, he decides to come home. He comes back in repentance. He comes back with head in his hands, rehearsing his pitiful confession, hoping to be his father's butler when he gets home. And the father, who's been watching and waiting ever since the boy left, runs out to meet him. He interrupts his speech. He brings out the robe, the ring, the sandals, the new shoes. He even calls the butcher to come and take care of Spotty. And they have a party. And the whole neighborhood shows up. Well, not everybody shows up. The elder brother, remember the sibling rivalry, is a no-show. When he hears the music and the dancing, he's coming in from the fields, there is grumbling. Remember the context? The elder brother, scribes, Pharisees, grumbling. 
And when the elder brother catches wind of what's happening and smells the grill, he is absolutely livid and he sends his regrets. He's not coming. Now here's the best verse in the whole parable, verse 28. When the father sees that the elder brother is now distancing himself from the celebration, watch this, his father comes out to him too. He's not only running to meet the prodigal, he's running to to meet his righteous son. This is a father with two sons. This is a father who loves two sons, who goes out to two sons, rebel and righteous. I was reading a book recently by Philip Yancey, his autobiography called Where the Light Fell. And he writes these words, I have come to know a God who has a soft spot for rebels who recruits people like the adulterer David and the whiner Jeremiah, the traitor Peter, and the human rights abuser Saul of Tarsus. I have come to discover a God whose son makes prodigals the heroes of his story and the trophies of his ministry. But the acceptance of the rebel doesn't mean the rejection of the righteous. The father begs the elder son to come to the party. But the boy's bitterness, the boy's resentment comes out. Listen to what he says. All these years, Dad, I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed a command Yet you have never even given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he won't even claim his brother. When this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, returns, you kill the fattened calf. And watch what the father does. The father doesn't shame. He doesn't coerce the boy. He reminds him of their relationship. The truth of the matter is, both sons were more interested in their own rights than they were their relationship with their father. And the father reminds the elder boy of the relationship. He says, son, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate. Watch this, because this brother of yours, he's reminding him of the relationship, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was gone and has now been found. This is a father who lives to reconcile. This is a father whose primary existence is to restore relationships in the family, and he always errs on the side of grace. Righteousness doesn't mean always being right. It means showing love, compassion, and understanding no matter what you think is right. In conclusion, I... I kind of need to say a word on behalf of the elder brother. I think he gets some pretty bad press. And I, I say this because I am the elder brother in my own family. I, I'm an elder brother. And I've discovered, maybe you have too, that sometimes grace 
looks a little too permissive for my taste. In other words, my brother got away with things that I never got away with. And so for this elder brother to attend his brother's homecoming party seems to condone his younger brother's behavior. And we mustn't have that. Sometimes grace feels unfair. And you know what? It is. But then grace has never been merit-based to begin with. It's mercy-based. It's mercy-based. It hit me this week when I was looking at this text that both of these boys were lost. You don't have to leave the premises to get lost. The elder brother never left the premises, but then he never fully claimed the promises of his father either. And I tell you, he was just as lost as the younger boy and maybe even harder to find. Because when we choose to live only by merit rather than mercy, it is easy to get lost, even in the church. Repentance for the prodigal means learning to say father again. And repentance for the elder son means learning to say brother again. And I've discovered, maybe you have, that you can't really be a son without being a brother. (laughs) You can't really be a daughter of God without being a sister. Now, what happened? Did the elder boy ever come to the party? We don't know. That's irrelevant. But what is relevant is this question to us. Will you celebrate grace? Will I attend the party? I love grace as long as it's shown to me, but I want justice shown to everybody else. Can I celebrate grace? There is more joy in heaven, Jesus said, over one person who turns around, one sinner who repents, than over 99 who don't even know they need to repent. And so the essence of this story is that at least in this family, in this church, celebration is not optional in this family. It's a necessity. The body of Christ is not a place to hide. It's a place to be found. Grace finds us. And so in these Lenten days, we all come today in repentance, acknowledging our sin, and we come back to our senses. We come back to ourselves, celebrating the unfairness of grace that is greater than my sin. So that those of us who consider ourselves sons and daughters may also be brother and sister to a world of hurt and need. May it be so, in Jesus' name, amen.